you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 10, verse 45. Mark 10, 45. We are starting a new series, an Advent series for the season of Advent this morning. We're going to look at a series of texts in the Gospels wherein Jesus tells us why and how he came. And so this morning, we're going to start with Mark 10, 45. Before we get into it, let's take a moment and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we, we, we need you. We need the Holy Spirit. We need your word to be illuminated to us so that we might know what it says and not just know what it says so that we might know more facts about your word so that we might know you and we might know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we pray open our eyes to see him, open our ears to hear his voice, soften our hearts to receive his word with trust and faith and hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Simon, whoopsie daisy, Simon Sinek, uh, his fame skyrocketed after his 2010 TED Talk entitled Start With Why. You've probably heard of Simon Sinek. It's just 18 minutes and four seconds, but in this, in this talk, he delivered a, a paradigm-shifting idea to the world that kind of essential secret to getting people to buy into a, a movement, an idea, a product, or, or whatever, is not just asking people to do things, but actually showing them the purpose, the aim, the, the why behind it all. And he uses figures like Martin Luther King Jr. And, and Steve Jobs as examples of people who discovered a profound why behind what it, what it is they did and how the masses found their why so compelling and intriguing and why they bought into the movement, the products that they, that they uh, proposed. And now it's over 28 million views and is the third most watched TED Talk of all time. And part of what makes Cynic's uh, TED Talk so compelling and so intriguing, so convicting perhaps, is that one is forced to reckon with how often we do things without asking why it is we're doing them in the first place. And I would suggest to you that the, the season of Advent and of Christmas deserve to be included in that designation. Why do we observe Advent? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, Advent is, is the season of the church calendar in which we find ourselves in, and it's, it's the season that leads up to Christmas. And the, the word Advent simply means coming. As the name implies, it's, it's the season in which we remember that Jesus has come and that he will come again, as Brian has, has already said. But even in that, why is his coming significant? Why, why, do we, why do we celebrate it? I mean, of course, you know, we set up our little manger scenes and we have a little baby Jesus in there and, and, and we like babies. Who doesn't like babies? Babies are 
are cute and they're little and they're, they're precious. Babies are, are cute. We, everyone likes babies. We like Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights, you know. Everyone likes the seven-pound, eight-ounce Jesus. I mean, it's, it, 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 babies are, are great. But as, as great as babies are, we typically don't observe national, international holidays or observe entire seasons because of their birth. I mean, this last year we had little Lottie, and Lottie is, is awesome. We, we love Lottie. She's precious. Um, she's great. But, but no one's calling you to, uh, asking you to call off work. No one's asking you to sing special songs and put up special decorations in your home and all that simply because she's born. No one that I know of has looked at Lottie and said, my Savior is here. I certainly hope not. What makes the birth of Jesus, what makes his coming so unique? What makes it so important? Why did he come? And this is important because without asking this essential question, we're in danger, like so many are, of sentimentalizing the season. We're in danger of making it all about jolly feelings and memories and, and traditions, as good as those things might be. And we're, we're in danger of missing out on what it is really all about, namely who Jesus is and why he came, what he came to do. And so this morning, through the next four Sundays on Christmas Eve as well, hopefully, Lord willing, we're, we're going to be answering the question, who is this and, and why did he come? Who is this and why did he come? And thankfully, we don't need to guess at this because the one who came actually told us himself who he is and why he came. In several places throughout the Gospels, the Lord Jesus gives purpose statements as to why he came. And so the first one that we're going to look at this morning is found in Mark 10, verse 45. Mark 10, 45, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. And we're actually going to read not just Mark 10, 45, but the nine verses preceding it. We're going to look at verses 35 through 45, just the, the preceding verses give it some context. And so let's read the entire passage, Mark, 35 to four, Mark 10, 35 to 45. And here's what it says. Let's listen with reverence and joy. This is the word of our God. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And the ten heard it. They began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, the big idea that we find here 
is that God came as a humble servant to redeem his people. God came as a humble servant to redeem his people. We're going to unpack this this kind of big idea here by looking at Jesus' title, the Son, and his vocation, the servant, and his work, the sacrifice. His title, vocation, and work, the Son, the servant, and the sacrifice. First, his title. Jesus says of himself here, for even the Son of Man came. Now, right away, you probably notice some oddities about this sentence. Normally, people don't speak of their, their conception and births as their coming. Jesus is, is giving us a, a strong hint here that he existed long before he was conceived. Christians throughout history have, have looked have long looked at Jesus' language describing his birth as a, as a claim to his preexistence, and thus is his claim to be truly God. And if his use of the word came is a hint of this, his use of, of the phrase son of man is a dead giveaway. It's not for nothing that Jesus used this phrase as his own title. In so doing, he's, he's hearkening back to an Old Testament text that his hearers would have been well familiar with. Their minds would have immediately be, been drawn back to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. In Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel is writing a series of, of visions that he had concerning the future. And in these visions, Daniel sees one that he calls the Ancient of Days. And it's clear that the Ancient of Days is, is actually God. All the descriptions make it abundantly clear. He's got all the trappings of God. He's got the white clothing and the white hair, and he's on the throne, and there's fire all around him, and thousands and thousands are are serving him. And of course, any physical descriptions are merely symbolic here, since God's not a physical or material being. He's, He's pure spirit, but it's clear this is God. This is God the Father. But then in verses 13 to 14, Daniel sees something else. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now what is that? What's happening there? That's that's a vision of the future ascension of Jesus from earth to heaven after his resurrection, <coughs> excuse me, he ascended to heaven, and now he reigns as the Son of Man forever and ever. All peoples and nations and languages serve him. His dominion will never pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Why? Because he's the divine Son of God. He's true God and true man. He's the God-man who came to save us. Now, let me tell you something absolutely essential that you need to know in order to understand the Bible. No one is supposed to be worshipped except God. And yet, who's being worshipped here? Who's being served here alongside the Ancient of Days? This one like a son of man. He's, he's here. Here we see something of the, of the doctrine of the Trinity in which we understand that God is one God, but multiple persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. And yet there's one God. And this one God is three persons with three distinct personal attributes. It goes beyond our capacity to to understand and grasp, but there it is. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. And here's what Jesus is claiming in Mark 10, 45. He's saying that the Son of Man, who all are supposed to 
bow down to and serve and worship the Son of Man who receives all authority and dominion and glory and a kingdom which will never be shaken. That's me. That's me. I'm, I'm the God-man. I'm the Son of God come to you in human flesh. And let me tell you, this is what makes Christianity so much different from any other religion or ideology. In every other religion, in every other ideology, we're, 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 we, we, we're told that to get to God, or to get to heaven, or, or to get to human flourishing and the summum bonum of, of all human existence. We have to do X, Y, and Z. We're to offer a particular sacrifice. We're to, to pray so many times a day. We're to live such and such lifestyle. We're to follow such and such rules. But in Christianity, it's, it's not that way. In Christianity, we see a revolutionary event in which the God who is our highest good actually comes to us and for us to save us. We, we've tried and we failed to work our way up to him. And there's nothing we can do to, to earn or deserve his, his love and forgiveness. We've tried to work our way up to heaven. We've tried to work our way up to human flourishing. We've tried to achieve the summum bonum of human existence, but we've never achieved it. And so he comes to us out of sheer grace, out of pure kindness, out of incomprehensible love. He comes to us in force. That's what we see in this title, the Son of Man, we see who he is. We see that this is the God-man, the one who rules over all. But then he tells us in the text why it is he came, moving on to his vocation as the servant. He goes on to say, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to be served, but to serve. And this is stunning. And the Apostle Paul, he, he marvels at this very same idea as he, he bursts out in this breathtaking hymn in, in Philippians 2, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, he did not come to get anything from us as if we had anything to offer him. We have nothing to offer him at all. You have nothing good to give him. You have nothing to give him. Nothing at all. Nothing at all that he wants. The scripture is clear. He, he, we can't actually serve the living God. Romans eleven thirty five says, Who's given a gift to him that he should be repaid? Acts 17, 25. He's not served by human hands as if, he, as if he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, there's nothing you can actually do to serve the living God. He doesn't need anything from us. And yet, although he needs nothing and wants for nothing, the marvelous thing is he comes to serve us. And this is, of course, takes place in this larger context of the preceding verses, which, which offers up Jesus as a servant in contrast with those who are self-seeking. Egotistical miscreants, he calls his disciples. And then we find two of Jesus' disciples, John and James, are brothers, the sons of Zebedee, and they come to Jesus with the most self-centered, self-seeking, self-obsessed, egotistical prayer request. They come to him saying, Jesus, do for us whatever we ask of you. Give us a blank check. And to this, Jesus says, and you almost see like the, the, the smirk on his face in response to this. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And so they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. You see, 
They likely imagined that Jesus' kingdom was going to be a mere, you know, merely kind of geopolitical kingdom, that, that he would incite Israel into a war against Rome and defeat Rome and bring back scattered, the scattered Israelites and re-inaugurate uh, the glory of Israel to the days of, uh, the days of King David. And they wanted to be a part of Jesus' cabinet, so to speak, when he was enthroned in, 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 in Jerusalem. But of course, they, they misunderstood that Jesus came to do much more than that. And so Jesus responds to them saying, you, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's speaking of his death on the cross. That's his cup to drink. That's the, 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 the baptism with which he's going to be baptized. He's speaking of the unspeakable suffering which he will have to go through in order to redeem his people. And they still don't understand. And so they respond, you know, we're able. We're able to do, to do you. We're able to do what you do. And they still don't quite understand. And yet while they don't, Jesus does. He knows that while they're not ready yet, they will indeed one day suffer for the sake of of his kingdom by taking his gospel to the lost elect. James will be the first of Christian martyrs. John will one day be exiled by the the Roman emperor Domitian to live out his days in isolation on the island of Patmos. And so he says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, from there, the rest of the disciples get grumpy. They're not mad out of kind of righteous indignation, but they're mad because they simply didn't think to ask for this first because they wanted to be the ones who sat at Christ's right hand and left hand when he enters into his glory. They wanted the, the glory of high rank and position. They, they wanted to be seen as preeminent men upon whom others wait hand and foot. And so it says that when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And J.C. Ryle describes him, he says, their ambition and love of preeminence were once more excited at the idea of anyone being placed above themselves. Our Lord saw their feelings, and like a wise physician, proceeded at once to supply corrective medicine. He tells them that their ideas of greatness are built on a mistaken foundation. Jesus says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, must be your diaconos, must be your deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to be waited on, not to get anything from us, but to be our servant. Now, of course, it's easy for us to look at, at James and John and the rest of them and, and think of them as acting like mere children. Their egotistical self-centeredness clouded their vision and made them look foolish. And if all we do is simply look down on them with a sense of superiority, we show ourselves to, to understand no more than they do. Because you see, we are James and John and those disciples. We are selfish. We are self-centered. We see this in, in many ways in our lives. In fact, it might be safe to say that the majority of our, our kind of besetting sins really stem from this selfish, egotistical way of approaching life. Even sins that we might not typically associate with selfishness, like that of worry. Worry 
Worry at its core come from, comes from a place of egotism and, and self-centeredness. We might think that worry is completely natural. It's a natural feeling whenever you care about anything or anyone. But as Tim Keller says, he says, worry is rooted in an arrogance that assumes I know the way my life has to go and God's not getting it right. Real humility means to relax. Friends, all of our, our worry, really, all of our worries about home and food and clothing, all our worries about politics and who's going to be in the White House, our worries about this pandemic, our worries about the economy and our jobs or, or whatever, what, what is that other than us saying in arrogance, I know the way my life in this world has to go and God's not getting it right. Or self-centered and, and egotism can even color our parenting. You're a parent, especially of young children. There aren't many vocations in life that, that demand more self-sacrifice and, and selfless service, more humility than that of parenting. And because of that, there's, there's not much more in life that might reveal your selfishness and your egotism that more than parenting does. The vast majority of the time that, that we, as parents, get impatient and perturbed and, and irritable with our children, why is it? It's because they're interfering with what we want for our lives. Their neediness interferes with our plans. Their misbehavior compromises our reputation, what others think of us, how, it reflect, how they reflect on us. Their selfishness challenges our selfishness, and so we get upset, we get impatient, we get irritable. Or we can approach our jobs in this way. Instead of seeing our jobs as a, as a means through which we can serve our neighbor and, and, and help provide for our families, we measure the worth of our jobs in terms of personal fulfillment. How does this job make me feel? How does this make, does it make me happy? Does it give me a sense of pers- purpose? Does it make me fulfilled? And that's about as American as, as apple pie, I, I guess, so it might not it might come as a shock to you to hear me talk about such questions in a negative way, but, but really, what is that other than self-centeredness? It's selfishness. It's egotism. How does this make me feel? Is this, is this personally fulfilling me? Or sometimes we can even approach church in this way. We can approach church with a consumeristic mindset. Far too often, as, as Americans, we approach church, as, as Jared Wilson once put it, saying, I'll attend, I'll give, I'll participate, so long as you never challenge me, correct me, or disappoint me. And if that happens, well, if, 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 if a sermon hits a nerve, if a church member confronts or corrects me, if the children's ministry isn't up to snuff, if I don't agree with the church's approach to this pandemic or, or whatever it is, I'm out of here, or I'm at least going to express my displeasure. And we could go on and on to give more examples. Maybe this is a good thing for you to discuss in your groups this week. But what Jesus is, is calling us to here. It's a Copernican revolution of sorts in, in which we take our eyes off ourselves and set them on our neighbor so that we might serve them and consider them as more important than ourselves. That verse I read from Philippians 2 calls us to much the same when Paul begins that hymn with saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
Don't approach parenting or marriage or church or job or whatever with an aim toward self-fulfillment and and self-gratification, but as an opportunity to love and serve your neighbor in humility. Why? Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He's the greatest. He's the Son of Man. But he lowered himself and he condescended to us to be our humble servants. And then he goes on here, moving on to to speak of the culmination of his service, the, the climax, the pinnacle, the peak of his life of service, which came in his death on the Roman cross. Look at me last at his work, the sacrifice. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says that he came to give his life. He came to die. He came to die a death on that Roman cross on top of Mount Golgotha. And of course, many before Jesus and many after Jesus were executed and crucified on Roman crosses, you see, this death was pregnant with theological purpose. This death on this cross was done as a ransom for many. Now, what is a ransom? A ransom, in in the biblical sense of the word, was a payment given to redeem someone from their debts and slavery. A person in Israel may find themselves in debt, in a debt they cannot pay. And so in order to work off their debt, they might become a slave of the one they owe. But a family member or a neighbor may come and pay the ransom for the indebted slave and release them from their debts and their slavery. And of course, as we as selfish, self-centered, egotistical miscreants are in debt to the living God, and it's a debt that we cannot pay. We stand before God deserving nothing but his eternal wrath and condemnation. We deserve just existence in hell forever and ever. We deserve his wrath. And yet because of his great love for us, this God took on human flesh and he came that he might serve us by becoming sin for us. And in becoming sin for us, he was punished with the punishment we deserve upon his cross. And that cross was the exact payment needed for us to be set free forever. Now, I want to be clear here. Please don't misunderstand or mistake this use of the word ransom, as Jesus teaching, or it's often taught, is the ransom theory of the atonement. The ransom theory of the atonement. You may or may not be familiar with that particular theory of atonement, but it uses a biblical word, ransom, to teach an unbiblical idea. And that unbiblical idea is, is it's this theory of atonement which teaches that Jesus died in order to pay a ransom to Satan so that we might be freed from slavery to him. I absolutely love the the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a wonderful book. Heartily recommend it to you. But in that book, C.S. Lewis depicts the ransom theory of the atonement. When Aslan died on the altar in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he did so to ransom Edmund from slavery to who? To the White Witch. And the White Witch had claim on Edmund. So Aslan needed to die in order to pay off the white witch so that she could, so that he could take Edmund and set him free. Well, that's not what's taking place on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus 
on his cross is not paying Satan anything. He's achieving utter victory over Satan. He's not seeking to satisfy Satan. He's defeating Satan and his accusation against God's people on the cross. He's not dying in order to satisfy Satan. In fact, Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. Think about what Jesus says to Simon Peter in Mark 8, 33, when Simon Peter was telling him, don't go to the cross. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Satan would keep Jesus from the cross. He would keep Jesus from the cross because Satan's not achieving a victory there. He's, he's not being paid off. He's being defeated. But then that leaves this question for us, who is Jesus paying? When he pays our ransom on the cross, when he dies as our ransom on the cross, he's paying God. Our debt is owed to God. He's the one that we have sinned against. He's the one that must be appeased. He's the one whose wrath burns hot against us in our sin. He's the one before him we stand condemned. And he's the one who must be paid in order for us to be redeemed. This is why the scriptures will often teach about the cross of Christ as the propitiation for our sins. Romans 3.25 speaks of Jesus as the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus is the one who makes propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 4.10 says that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? Propitiation is a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. It's a sacrifice which absorbs the wrath of the one propitiated so that he might be favorable toward us. You might remember it by the word pro, which begins the word propitiation. It makes God pro us instead of anti us. Instead of him being against us, he becomes pro us. And now many Christians have often rejected this teaching concerning propitiation in this ransom of Christ because they think it makes God seem angry and makes him seem wrathful. But that's okay because God is angry. He is wrathful. He, he hates sin. He's just righteous, holy, and pure. And he can't just simply overlook our sin and wink at it and pretend that it doesn't exist. Justice must be satisfied. God's wrath against human beings must be appeased. And because God is love and because he longs to be favorable toward us and gracious and kind to us and merciful to us, he made a way. He became our ransom to be our propitiation. He came to die the death that we deserve to die in our place. That's what the word for means here when Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many the Greek word there translated as for is not the usual word translated as for. Sometimes when you see that word in the New Testament, the word for, it means because of. He's not saying here that Jesus came to die as a ransom because of many. Here, the word for means in the place of. He came to die as a ransom in the place of many. It's you and it's me that deserve to be on that cross suffering because of our sins, being punished because of our sins, bearing the eternal wrath of the eternal omnipotent God because of our sins. And yet because this God loves us and longs to be kind to us, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the Son of Man, came to bear it in our place so that we wouldn't have to. He came to be our ransom. He came to be our propitiation. He came to be our substitute. 
That's why he came. We don't sentimentalize this season. We don't make it about a cute little baby and a cute little manger with a cute little family and cute little farm animals. The significance of this event is not wrapped up in the catalog of beasts present at the birth of Christ. It's not wrapped up in family traditions or jolly feelings or whatever. Remember why he came. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. The early Eastern paintings of the the nativity got this right. So often, these early paintings of the nativity, they, they, they depict all the aspects of the nativity that we often think of with Mary and Joseph and the animals and the shepherds and everyone. But then they would often depict the manger of Christ. The, 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 manger of Christ that, the, the manger of Christ that he lied in, they depict it as a, a casket. And Jesus' swaddling clothes, they'd, they'd wrap him as in grave clothes. In the grave clothes that he would later be wrapped in, reminding viewers that Jesus came to die so that man no more may die. He came to suffer in our place as our ransom, as our propitiation. And so what do we do in light of all this? Two things. We receive it and we resemble it. And first, we receive it. There's nothing you can do to earn or deserve the kindness and forgiveness of the living God. But the good news is that he paid our way in full so that really all you must do is come to him with empty hands and receive it. And in fact, that's actually the only way that you can come is if you come helpless, looking for grace, naked, looking to be clothed, empty-handed, asking to be filled. The only ones who receive what God has to give in Christ are those who are not too proud to be served by him. What did Jesus say to Simon Peter when Jesus was about to wash his feet? Peter said, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. You'll never serve me. That's too far beneath you. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, if you don't let me serve you, you won't receive what I have to give you. Friends, simply receive what he is giving. That's the gospel. That's primarily what Christianity is all about. Some may say that Christianity is primarily about a life of serving God. That's not true. Christianity is first and foremost about letting God serve you as your ransom and savior. Perhaps you're, you're, you're not a Christian. You're here today or watching on the live stream. You want to know how to become a Christian, how to be forgiven for your sins, how to be made right with God, how to have peace with God and within yourself. All you must do is come to God with empty hands and receive his gifts. Perhaps you are a Christian. You've gotten stuck in a, in a cycle of feeling and thinking that you have to earn your place with God. You've got to appease him and make, you, and make him happy with you apart from Christ. I'd say the same thing to you. You can sigh a sigh of relief today. Jesus Christ accomplished everything needed for you to be forgiven, to be freed from your guilt, to be made right with God, to be at home with him. God's wrath has been fully absorbed on the cross for you. Jesus, like a sponge, soaked up every last drop of God's wrath for you so you need no longer bear it. Instead, God's smiling face shines upon you as his own beloved child. All you have to do is open your empty hands and receive his free gift. Receive it. 
but then also resemble it. Just like Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. You're about to be sent out into the world, not to be served, but to serve. To serve as a parent, as a spouse, as an employee, as, as a church member, as a neighbor, as a son or a daughter. You, you, and don't you see how the cross of Christ finally sets you free to be the servant you're sent out to be? Because now you no longer need to be so intensely focused on yourself and on, on getting what you want and what you need because Jesus came to serve you and to give you everything you need in himself. You are fully and wonderfully protected and provided for. You have all your needs met in Christ. All your wants, which are your ultimate wants, are ultimately met in Christ and satisfied in Him. And so you can remove yourself from the center of your world and begin to consider your neighbor like the servant you've been called to be. And so resemble, imitate Him in His humble service. Serve your neighbor like Jesus has served you. Friends, God came as a humble servant to redeem his people. This is the reason for the season, so to speak. This is why we're remembering and celebrating Advent. Advent and Christmas are ultimately about our salvation in the Son of Man. It means our ransom has come, our propitiation has come, our suffering servant has come, the Son of Man has come. And so in the season, what we're called to is to receive him and resemble him as his people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus has come. And we thank you that, that he has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. And we pray that in this season, we would remember who this Christ child is, why he's come, so that we might receive him and all of his benefits and so that we might resemble him in this season to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.